bringing AI to life. Hello and welcome to our talk on AI in healthcare. In this session, we speak with medical practitioners, healthcare experts and AI enthusiasts to bring you a ground level understanding of how they have incorporated technology to improve access to quality healthcare and make a real difference to their communities. Great mother so one of the things i was what i was saying is that as i was um, reading a bit more about your background and so on i saw that uh, interesting and i was looking at your profile and you've worked a lot i mean so where do you think i mean how is how is it different from working for uh, ihf and uh, what sort of what do you see as uh, the differences between how a pharma company thinks versus how you think at ihf oh, thanks and you know when you say you spent a long time it's obviously a very gentle reference to how old i am <laughs> that apart so i spent um about 4 5 years in pharma but then i spent 20 years working in food and beverage with nestle at nestle i spent a long time working with the nutrition business and the dairy business so there are overlaps there but i think the big difference between the way pharma approaches a pharma's view of the world and india health fund view of the world is pharma being i think commercially oriented obviously looks at return and that's an important consideration not just from the commercial point of view but also from the sustainability mm-hmm. of the organization as well as competitiveness and looks implications on the stock price which i think determines the choices that the pharma industry makes and as a result of that what we've i think seen over the years is a very clear focus on non communicable disease and the application of i think cutting edge science and very heavy investments in r&d particularly for non communicable diseases and i think the results of that are very clear i mean there have been massive improvements in the kinds of treatments available for things like cancer diabetes uh, cardiac health and so on with huge implications on i think the way patient outcomes are now panning out as a result of those drugs i think that's the one difference that india health fund has vis-a-vis pharma because our origins lie in the nature of focus that pharma has had which has been on non-communicable diseases because of the returns there the reality is that communicable diseases never went to but they were affecting i think a segment of the population which didn't necessarily ability to pay and whose uh, healthcare needs were primarily serviced by governments and the not for not for profits where the returns for industry were much lower and that inhibited the i think the ability of pharma to make the kind of investments that were needed in developing i think technology and science driven solutions which could match i think the kind of progress that were made for non communicable diseases and that's where india health fund comes in uh, our origins really lie in that Yeah, so we were created by the Global Fund and Tata Trusts to help fill the financing gap that existed for promising solutions that are leveraging the latest in science and technology, with a particular focus on improving outcomes in the treatment, diagnosis, and prevention of communicable diseases. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, where a little bit of the difference lies, where between pharma and what we do. But I think what, thanks to COVID, yeah. which is i think the one thing that we can thank covid for is the focus on communicable diseases is back yeah and i think we're now finding some very interesting pathways between communicable and non communicable diseases particularly when you look at the focus on 
science and technology that can become a platform for application across more than one disease. And I think the work that Curia is doing is a very good example of that, where you have leveraged a technology to develop a platform that can be applied across multiple lung conditions, whether it's tuberculosis, which is where our relationship started, uh, COVID, and now lung cancer. So I think the lines are hopefully blurring and will all go well for the future. I think that's a, a very good point, actually. I mean, I think what you, what you mentioned uh, makes a lot of sense. And I know, I mean, you worked at Pfizer in a very senior role, a senior role for a long time, right? And Pfizer was one of the pioneers in the COVID vaccine. And they came out with the vaccine in like nine months from the time that COVID uh, hit the world. And look at TB, for example, right, where we both operate. And TB has, we're still working on a vaccine. We're still sort of using the same vaccine from 100 years ago. And how do we, I mean, the question is that, I mean, again, look, having worked at Pfizer, where do you think, how can we create the incentives for TB also to work like that, right? I mean, because, I mean, waiting more time, waiting 10 more years again, I mean, you could wait 10 more years for one more vaccine to come for TB. But how do you enable that kind of innovation to happen uh, in the TB world? Because it's not happening. And, you know, I think, again, you brought up the, a great example of the COVID vaccine. It happened because there was an urgency, there was a need, and there was focus behind. And whether it was governments or corporates or the private uh, or the public sector, everybody put their minds at all, as well as their resources behind not just developing the vaccine, but also the speed with which it was developed. And a lot of the bottlenecks that potentially existed were removed. So if you think about it, um, vaccine development takes anything between five and 10 years, and sometimes longer. It happened in nine months in the case of the COVID vaccine. But that also that happened because of a lot of the de-bottleneck. Money was not an issue. So governments put money down upfront at risk for development. Now that has obviously, I think, translated into many of the, I think, sourcing deals that have emerged as a result of that. Mm. So money was not an issue. Uh, there were sovereign guarantees behind many of that, that financing. Uh, I think a lot of the very rigid protocols were also treated more flexibly. So instead of stage one in trials happening consecutively, in many cases, stage two and three trials were merged yeah. Yeah. in order to, I think, speed up. Uh, the assessment of the trial results did not wait for the results to really, for all of the trial results to come through. They happened in real time and were periodically reviewed by the regulators. So I think the COVID vaccine development has actually shown that it is possible, but it will take a village. And in this case, it took the whole world to come together, but it did happen. Mm -hmm. If you think about, I think, not just the way the development happened, but then the way the licensing happened, which also happened at risk. And in many cases, manufacturing happened at risk before the trials were completed, before approvals were in place. Um, the Serum Institute produced several million doses at risk before anything was known about whether the vaccine would be successful or not. And that has really, I think, changed mindsets, paradigms, and I think demonstrated that it is possible. Now, we're going to need the same kind of will to address, I think, many of the other challenges that exist, whether it's for tuberculosis or any other the other diseases which have evaded a vaccine so far. But the technology exists. Um, as you, you're probably aware, mRNA technology is now being applied for to develop a malaria vaccine. Now, will it happen with the same speed and the same urgency? We don't know. But the technology now exists and the possibilities are there. And I think the opportunities are there. It's a question of whether the stakeholders come together 
So one of the Good. goals for IHF is to find um, such innovative technologies and help promote them and help them grow into uh, a more sort of robust product, right? And we have, you have done that with Cure, I mean, over the last uh, couple of years, I mean, with IHF funding, we have enhanced, you know, we had the AI product to interpret x-rays, but that was mostly for digital x-rays, right? And then we saw that a lot of these places in India, a lot of the hospitals in India, they don't have the digital x-ray system. So through IHF, we worked on this, uh, you gave us this grant and we worked on this technology where you could take a mobile phone picture. I mean, so basically just use your normal phone, take a picture of the x-ray and we can now process that, right? And that was something which uh, very innovative that came out of uh, this exercise. Are you seeing, um, I mean, people working on things like vaccines, things like faster diagnostics and um, a lot of other things from, uh, and is that happening in India? I mean, or is it mostly global? I mean, mostly outside of India that is happening. And so just wanted to understand what kind of innovative technologies are you seeing at IHF? Because you are obviously seeing a lot of such uh, kinds of technologies. I'm sure is one of them, but I'm sure you're seeing probably 30, 40, maybe 100 of them, right? Or maybe more. Yeah, in fact, um, I think COVID has given us many surprises. And I think one of the surprises of COVID has been the emergence of, I think, very, very promising technology solutions. So the approach we take at IHF is, and this is, I think, going back to the basic principles of need gap assessment, where is where is the biggest unfulfilled need? And that's something we do in very close coordination with our partners in the government, in the public sector, in the private sector, and global organizations. Because the need gap, particularly for communicable diseases, is not that different from India vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. And I think that's something, obviously, you guys are also very familiar with. But having identified the need gap, I think the solution spotting has, is where we have a lot of fun because it gives us the ability to work broad and work deep with a range of, I think, organizations, players, startups, academics, and institutions who are working on, I think, application of science and technology in different ways to address these gaps. And what we're seeing is a very creative approach now to the application of science and technology, because I think the understanding of the need is much greater, and I think much clearer, because it doesn't only span the need for therapeutics or vaccines or potentially diagnostics. It's a much wider ranging understanding of the need. So we're seeing some incredibly creative technology solutions being applied for infection control, particularly airborne infections. And whether it's, um, I think, low risk solution or low risk is probably not the right word, but uh, less harmful to human health solutions, which can, I think, sanitize the air in a certain area with a very high degree of uh, accuracy is one. The other is that in the area that you work in, the application of artificial intelligence beyond diagnostics. So we've, I think, we're now working with an organization which is using artificial intelligence to identify, I think, not just mosquito concentrations, but the specific species of mosquitoes hmm. for concentrations so that uh, 
potential outbreaks of vector-borne diseases can be identified in real time using the wing beak frequencies of the mosquitoes, which are picked up by sensors. The AI algorithm is being trained. Wow. <laughs> to diagnose them. And that provides real-time information to the surveillance databases and the surveillance centers so that vector control activities can happen in real time rather than much later. And there is the possibility to actually link this to immediate spraying activities using And that's all happening, not in a developed part of the world, but in India. In fact, in some of the most um, underdeveloped parts of the country where these solutions are most needed. I, th I think that's uh, that's the I mean very very good point that you brought up about the underdeveloped parts of the world, right? That we I mean a lot of innovation typically has come in from the more developed part of the parts of the world, and uh, now the question is I mean for a country like India, which is still sort of uh, definitely economically quite powerful but still not that developed, how do we bring that innovation to the country, right? How do we get uh, people to innovate these kinds of solutions because it's while I mean there is funding from let's say uh, uh, some of the advanced uh, some of the developed country governments for TB and malaria and HIV and so on, but the reality is that uh, interest from corporates in those countries to work on these kinds of diseases is very low. I mean, uh, for um, any of the big pharma to work on a TB drug or a TB vaccine or any of that, it's it's very low, right? So I think the question is how do we encourage? And I think IHF is doing a very good job at that, right? How do we encourage these younger generation entrepreneurs to now look at problems which are more prevalent in the developing geographies. I mean, India being one of them, but I mean, whatever you develop in India could possibly apply to a lot of Southeast Asia, uh, all of South Asia, definitely, and maybe a lot of Africa and Latin also, right? So how do we build that out? And India could become the hub for building those kinds of solutions. I mean, for us, we have seen that, right? We, we started with TB because um, we met the, I mean, this is, I, I'll talk about our story, right? When we, we had a chest X-ray solution back in 2017. And um, we had a, I had a chance to meet the health secretary um, of India, uh, who basically reports into the health minister and uh, spoke to him about what potential opportunities we could have with the chest X-ray product and how we could apply that uh, with the um, public sector hospitals that are run by the government. And the first thing that he said was that this could be potentially useful for TB because uh, TB diagnostics uh, is one that where X-ray is very useful and getting the X-ray read is a challenge. And, you know, uh, that led to a meeting with um, the who's who of TB research in India. I mean, I, we had Gates Foundation, USAID, CTD, of course, uh, and a bunch of others, so like 20 people on the in a meeting about a week later in Delhi. And that is when we started working on TB. And um, we from there, we sort of, we had a chest X-ray product to detect a lot of conditions. We said, now we build uh, something specifically for TB. And that started from India. Initially, it started only from India, but then we realized that the application is global. I mean, it's not only for India, right? It can be applied to Vietnam or Philippines or Indonesia or uh, Peru uh, or South Africa, Malawi. Um, so it's a broad, broad range of countries that you could then uh, take that product to. So, so that's sort of, I think, question, the point that I'm driving at and that I'm driving at is that we could be building these solutions out of India for the world, right? And world, maybe not necessarily the US, um, uh, UK could also be that, but I mean, for the kinds of conditions we're talking about might be more for uh, the developing economies. But is that what you're seeing with a lot of your grantees? I mean, are they developing for the world from India? Are they looking at innovating out of India? 
or is there are you seeing more people sort of focused on the indian uh, indian ecosystem indian market it's a great question because when india health fund was set up it was set up with the express intention of i think leveraging the scientific know-how as well as the entrepreneurial ecosystem that existed in india to develop in india for the world so the intention is exactly as you said whatever solutions we develop for india are re relevant for other parts of the world especially when we're talking about communicable diseases and i think the approach that we take is very much as i mentioned about need gap assessment where when we do the need gap assessment not just with the focus on india but for other for the geographies as well and that's where our partnerships with uh, organizations with a representation beyond india whether it's who um the UN Stop TB Alliance, uh, the Asia Pacific Leaders Malaria Alliance, and so on and so forth. Organizations like the Gates Foundation and Pint. All of them help us make sure that we're taking into account the specific and sometimes the common needs of other parts of the world. But that's in the need gap assessment, but we're also assessing solutions. We apply the same lens. Is the solution applicable to other parts of the world. And the assessment, the independent expert panel that we work with provides that perspective because they represent different constituencies from different parts of the world. And they also then continue to provide the kind of guidance and mentorships to the projects that we take on board for support to make sure that they are designing and developing their solutions, not just with an eye on India, but for other relevant geographies leading eventually to the goal of making sure that they also go through the WHO pre-qualification process, which, as you know, is a prerequisite for many of these solutions to be adopted in other parts of the world. So I think that's the journey that we follow. And I think most of the projects, almost all of the projects that we support are at various stages of that journey. Some of them, of course, have already been accepted in other parts of the world. And that leads me to, I think, a question that I would have for you, because Cure has probably been one, probably the most successful product, project from the India Health Fund portfolio that has been adopted across the world. And I'd love to get your thoughts on what has facilitated, I think, the adoption of the Cure solution, whether it's for TB or for COVID and now increasingly for lung cancer in both developing and developed countries? And is there a lesson that we can learn from that? Not just for, I think, AI-enabled solutions, but for technology-driven solutions in general to ensure wider and faster adoption. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question, actually. I mean, I, when I think about our journey, right? I mean, it is very interesting in some ways. When we started Cure, we thought that the opportunity might be in US, UK. And we said, we'll build out of India. And uh, India is good for developing solutions because you have got great talent here. Um, you got a lot of data. To build AI solutions, you need a lot of data. So we said, okay, we have talent, we have data, we can build good solutions out of India. Let's build it out. Let's uh, market it in US, UK, Europe, 
uh, and some of the developing geography. That was the initial thesis we had when we started Cure. But you know, what we realized is that that of course is there. That has always been there. That is something we have been working on. But there is a significant need in the developing economies as well, the low and middle income countries as they're called. And um, the reality is that the quality of care is so low. I mean, if I go to a US hospital, even some of the worst hospitals, the quality of care is quite good. And uh, the interpretation of an x-ray is typically, not only typically, it's almost always done by radiologists, right? And you have radiologists everywhere. You have 10x the number of radiologists per person in US as compared to India. So that that need is much lower there, right? And while you look, I mean, you look at India, I mean, you're seeing that uh, need is so much higher. I mean, we uh, we went to Philippines. Philippines was our first paying customer. And there was this um, uh, organization in Philippines, which was doing uh, TB screening in a van. They were our first customer. And they had these mobile vans, which had um, X-rays units within the van. And they used to travel around the country for uh, screening people. And uh, every day they would screen about 100, 200 people. And their challenge was that for them to get that x-ray read took about two, three weeks because you don't have a radiologist on the van. And then you come back to Manila and then you take all the x-rays. Basically not the physical, I mean, digital copies of the x-ray, send it to a radiologist, upload on a Google Drive or something, get it read. And that used to take about three, four weeks. And by that time, the TB patient that you screened on day one is probably already infecting 100 other people, right? And uh, they're already much worse, potentially much more serious than they were uh, on day one. So you have that opportunity now to, I mean, basically get that x-ray read at that time. Whenever that x-ray is taken instantaneously, you can identify whether it is potentially normal or abnormal and uh, likelihood of TB and then go forward from there. So something that used to take three, four weeks, I mean, or uh, sometimes it might be longer, right? You can basically crunch it down to a very short amount of time. So then we realized that, yeah, I mean, the opportunity is there in the developed economies for sure, but also the developing economies have got a big need for TB, for COVID-19, for lung cancer, uh, for stroke, trauma, for a lot of these conditions. And that sort of, because we had that mindset, we also sort of, we had a very global mindset from the beginning because we started looking at US, UK, and we never started thinking that, okay, we are going to go to a Medanta or a Max or a Apollo and try to sell it in India. We said we are going to go global. We are going to go to some of the best hospitals in the US or UK, NHS and so on and work with them. So we had that global mindset from day one and um, we actually got into the Indian uh, Indian customers and the Southeast Asian customers, um, the LMIC customers afterwards. So, so that way we had a global presence. Other thing is that I think that also when you're thinking globally, it sort of leads you to think about regulatory approvals. You have to get FDA clearances, CE certifications. Uh, you have to get uh, clearances for Brazil or uh, for Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia. You have to get clearances in each of those geographies, which is an investment. But if you think globally, you are working on that. And you are working on that while you are building the product or after the product is built, but before it becomes commercialized, right? Second is on the commercial team as well. I mean, when you are building out uh, how to commercialize these solutions, you have to go and find the customers. I mean, customers will start finding you when you have a very big brand, but till you build that brand, I mean, you have to go and find your customers. So we have, we also had that mindset where our team was pretty global. I mean, we uh, had people in US, UK, uh, Middle East, um, India, and focused on a wider geography. So I think that mindset uh, was there. And um, I think that mindset is very important that Companies realize that whatever we build in India can be applicable to a lot of other countries. And um, we have great talent. We have we can build great products out of our country. And we should definitely try to um, look, uh, work, uh, have a global mindset, then just focus on India as a market. And I think that's, that's what we have.